I am Thomas Solomon, and you are listening to the VO2 Podcast. Today, I will make a deep dive into the science of the super shoes, their prevalence in the recent world record boom, and what world athletics are doing about it. Plus, I will weave my own subjective opinions into the objective evidence. There was a time when a popular running book convinced millions that running barefoot was the path to performance dominance. Occasionally, a dad would rock up to his kid's school sports day, planning to dominate the dad's race in his new shoes, while the other dads would gaze on in astonishment and shout, but he isn't wearing anything at all. Those days are long gone, and there is a new emperor in town, Elliot Kipchoge, who wore his new clothes, the regulation-conforming 40mm stack height, carbon blade-embedded, swoosh-clad shoes, to smash the two-hour marathon mark. And he did so with what looked like pain-free ease. Running at 21 kilometers per hour should not be easy, and should not certainly be easy to do for two hours. That was 2019, when the world was still normal, not ordinary, but normal. What happened next was not normal, and it was far from ordinary. 2020 turned out to be quite the year. In 2020, the world became infected with a novel coronavirus, and the running world became infected with a mix of virtual TTs, time trials, FKTs, fastest known times, a smattering of Diamond League exhibition events, and just a few real races, like the World Half Marathon Champs and the Valencia Marathon. Personally, I was fortunate to take part in two virtual mountain race series in my hometown. But, with the exception of one of our esteemed locals romping up the vertical kilometre route in 38 minutes, these were far from world class. Among the world-class events of 2020, there were several brain-aching efforts. In January, the year started warming up when Kenya's Ronex Kipruto destroyed the men's 10k road world record in Valencia. In February, Ethiopia's Ababel Yashani blasted to a new women's half-marathon world record in the UAE. In the same month, Uganda's Joshua Cheptegei smashed the 5km road world record in Monaco. Later in the year, in August, on the track in Monaco, Cheptegei took the 5,000m track world record, down to an astounding 12.35. In September, Britain's Mo Farah set a new one-hour track world record in Brussels, while Sifan Hassan from the Netherlands followed up an hour later with the women's record. Then, in October, Cheptegei returned to the track to break the 10,000m world record in Valencia, and, just moments later, at the same meet, Ethiopia's Lesezembet Gide smashed the women's 5,000m world record. Finally, to add the topper to the tree, in December, Kenya's Kibiwot Kandie annihilated the men's half-marathon world record in 57.32, in Valencia, with the next three folks close behind him also eclipsing the existing record, Uganda's Jacob Kiplimo, and Kenyans Ronex Kipruto and Alexander Mutiso. Plus, we should certainly not forget that at the end of 2019, 
Kenya's Bridget Koskai broke the women's world marathon record in 2.14.04 at the Chicago Marathon, and Elliot Kipchoge ran a ridiculous 1.59.40 exhibition marathon in Vienna. For you, I'm breaking my critical speed just thinking about it. It has indeed been a ridiculous 12-ish months, but while incredible to watch, these events do prompt an important question. Why have there been so many epic performances in such a short period? We could just argue that it is simply time for a breakthrough, but we are smarter than that and we have knowledge of possible reasons. Let's start with genetics, a riveting topic, but while genetics indeed play a massive role in performance and in the adaptations to training, it is highly unlikely that a major genome shift has occurred in the last 12 months. What about the elephant in the room? Doping. In 2020, due to COVID-induced restrictions, fewer out-of-competition tests were conducted and some anti-doping agencies completely discontinued their testing amidst the lockdowns. But despite less testing, there were more positive tests in athletics than usual and several high-profile bans, Wilson Kipsang, Christian Coleman, Ruth Jebet, have been imposed for doping violations including those three missed tests and you're out departures. With the COVID-induced break from the norm, it probably has been easier to dope, but some folks have also been more able to focus on training and recovery than usual. Additionally, athletes have had no race season to deal with, which means less travel and less training interruption. So, a possible explanation for the 12 months of power-ups might be folks' increased freedom to focus on undistracted training blocks with more time for rest and better quality eats and sleeps. Coupling this with the peace of mind arising from not having to plan logistics, not having to stress over whether training is going well or not, and not having to stress over beating or losing to your opponents, may also have allowed more brain peace and calm to further support recovery. These speculations are fun to ponder, but theorising on the recent performance-boosting role of training, recovery, psychology and doping, while enticing, is not directly supported by evidence. For example, we do not know whether the athletes who have raised the bar in the last 12 months have doped nor do we know how their lives and training have been affected by COVID, nor do we know whether they have worked out and or recovered more optimally than usual. However, there is one other factor that is a strong candidate for pulling the strings. Technological doping. At the US Marathon Trials in February 2020 and the Tokyo Marathon in March 2020, two of the few real races of the year, it was a showdown between the 40mm stack height carbon blade embedded swoosh clad shoes and whatever the non-swoosh sponsored rivals could clad their feet in. In Tokyo, the swoosh clad Vaporfly dominated with athletes putting down some ridiculous performances. The Japanese national record was smashed, bringing it down to 205.29. 28 men broke 2.10 that day, and 10 women went under 2.30. The US trials were more interesting. Some brands, like On, allowed their athletes to wear any shoe they liked. Many non-sponsored athletes, including the eventual second-placed male, Jake Riley, chose to don swooshed models, 
which were freely available in the event village. Some athletes even reportedly wore Transformers, Nikes in disguise, to appease their sponsors, as athletes have done at other races. In the men's race, everyone that wore some derivation of the swoosh-clad Vaporfly or Alphafly dominated the top 10, while the women's race was won by a non-swoosh but still carbon fibre-clad Hoka shoe, and the top 10 included a veritable smorgasbord of carbon-infused brands. For the other events of 2020, where world records fell like dominoes, the epic feats of endurance were all achieved with carbon fibre super shoes. Nike's Vaporfly Next Percent shoe clung to the feet of Bridget Koskai and Elliot Kipchoge when they broke the marathon world records, Ababel Yashani when she broke the half marathon world record, and Joshua Cheptegei when he broke the 5km road world record. On the track, Aided by pacing from the metronome-like wave-like technology, Nike's carbon fibre dragonfly spike propelled Joshua Cheptegei's 5,000m and 10,000m world records, Gide's 5,000m women's world record, and Mo Farah's and Sifan Hassan's one-hour records. But Nike were not the only record-breakers. Ronex Ruto broke the men's 10k world record, floating along in a carbon fibre Adidas prototype while the Valencia half-marathon, among Kibiop Kwandi, Jacob Kiplimo, Ronex Kipruto and Alexander Mutiso, the four men who dipped under the previous world record, two wore Nike's Alphafly Next Percent, and two wore a prototype of the five-carbon-rodded Adidas Adizero Adias Pro shoe. A little more insight into how popular these super shoes are becoming was found at the World Half Marathon Championships in October 2020, where a huge number of national records and personal best times fell. Of the 117 finishers, 50 wore a Vaporfly, 25 donned an Alphafly, and 14 laced up in an Adidas Adizero Adios Pro. Only 8 athletes wore a non-carbon plated shoe, None of them featured highly in the race, and the remaining athletes wore various carbon fibre infused shoes from Asics, Sorconi, New Balance and Brooks. This can be viewed as rather exciting, but there is a tough pill to swallow. The moral dilemma. In October 2020, Olympic marathon legend turned coach Lee Troop was interviewed on the Clean Sport Collective podcast. Among the many interesting topics, he viewed his opinion on the swoosh shoe debate, which was heartfelt because his own then unsponsored athlete, Jake Riley, wore a pair of free Vaporflies for the US Olympic marathon trials. Jake Riley finished second that day, earning his spot in Tokyo. But the coach-athlete dynamic was a tricky one. Wear a shoe from a brand you do not like, plus wear a shoe you know will enhance your performance, or choose not to wear such a shoe, thus metaphorically giving your competitors a head start. Troop's feelings were clear. He had to go against his morals to allow Riley to choose his own path. His feelings echo my own. When athletes are racing at the world-class end of the field, I can totally understand the levelling the playing field attitude. But that is also a dangerous justification because it is the same reason other athletes choose to justify doping. On the other hand, 
athletes who are further down the field are merely racing themselves in a time trial against the clock. For them, training hard might have gotten them their well-deserved PB, but by adding a 40mm stack height carbon blade embedded swoosh clad shoe into the mix, they will never know if they are better or if their time was only bettered by technology. Some folks are fine with just running faster at any cost. I am not. Either way, we should not be having this discussion and would not be having this discussion if world athletics were protecting the integrity of sport. The reality is that the discussions are being had and the next-gen shoes are now embedded in athletics. So what is so special about them? The science of the shoe. Several shoe advances have been made over the years. Spikes, cushioning, lighter foams and so on. A systematic review of the literature found that running economy is most improved by a shoe with a lower mass, more cushioning and a greater longitudinal shoe stiffness, while greater shoe mass impairs running time trial performance. Back in the early 90s, with my long ginger hair and acne, I remember Reebok Graphlites, old school carbon fibre shoes with their bizarre missing wedge under the midfoot. In the early 2000s, Adidas also dabbled in the carbon game. And let's definitely not forget that before Oscar Pistorius was locked up behind carbon-containing steel bars, his legs were made of carbon fibre blades. My point is that running with carbon fibre is not new. Data shows that inserting carbon fibre plates into a shoe's midsole to increase longitudinal bending stiffness improves running economy, more greatly so in heavier subjects. We also know that increasing the longitudinal bending stiffness with a thicker carbon plate causes a greater ground reaction force in the lever arms of our lower extremity joints during the push-off phase of running. Nike was the first brand to go large with carbon and combine it with a low-mass, more cushioned shoe, introducing the world to the Vaporfly 4% in 2016. Then, nearly a year later, competing brands followed. Hoka, New Balance, Asics, Brooks, Sorconi and Adidas have since developed their own lightweight, highly cushioned carbon fibre clogs. But are they lagging behind? Well, we, we don't actually know, because there are only published experimental studies on the original swoosh-clad Vaporfly 4% model. No doubt this will change, and I hope it does, because right now the only comparisons that can be made between the various brands' carbon fibre clogs are from the anecdotal observations made in the field. As the story is unfolding, the Nike Vaporfly or Alphafly Next% Percent models dominate the medals and the records, with the Adidas Adizero Adios Pro coming a close second. Sadly, notice how I refer to the race dominance by the shoe not the athlete. So, what do we know about the science of the Vaporfly? The experimental data collected to date has been on treadmills during short 3-5 to five minute bouts to measure the oxygen cost, running economy, at various sub-maximal speeds. As yet, only one lab study has examined running time trial performance. However, we do have 
real-world race day data that I just described to act as a surrogate for the lack of time trial performance lab data. Since fatigue during a long race can alter biomechanics and impair economy, one may speculate that race day benefits of carbon fibre supershoes are even more pronounced than those found during the short duration lab testing. It is also notable that all lab studies have used level running, so we do not know the effects of these super shoes on incline and decline running, which changes the energy cost of running. That said, manufacturers like Hoka, who released their crazy 10-9 downhill shoe, are likely well aware that shoe soles stacks that help offset downhill or uphill grades can indeed minimise oxygen costs. It appears that North Face might also be aware of this with the recent release of their Flight Vectif trail shoe. Experimental studies have clearly shown that when compared to other non-carbon-plated marathon racing shoes or spikes, the Vaporfly 4% reduces the oxygen cost of running in trained runners, even when the mass of the different brand shoes are matched. This effect is associated with the greater energy storage in the midsole foam, a lever effect of the carbon fibre plate on the ankle joint, plus a stiffening effect of the carbon fibre plate on the joints in the toes. Other studies have found that the Vaporfly 4% increases stride length and plantar flexion velocity and that improved economy is also associated with lower ground contact times. When examining the type of carbon plate, one study compared four Vaporfly prototypes, finding that when compared to a Vaporfly without a carbon plate, a flat versus a moderately curved versus a highly curved plate incrementally lowered the energy cost of running. This suggests that when the highly cushioned Zoom X foam is combined with a highly curved carbon plate, which is only made possible by a large stack height, e.g. 40mm, there is a somewhat symbiotic 1 plus 1 equals 3 scenario. You need both components and gain nothing with just one of them. We also know that the Vaporfly causes less leg stort soreness and lower levels of muscle damage following a marathon when compared to the Zoom Pegasus, and that during a week of training, the Vaporfly prevents the fatigue-induced decline in pace, enabling athletes to maintain training loads for longer. These types of effects, combined with improved economy, can manifest performance gains. And that is exactly what we are seeing. Athletes are more likely to improve their 3km time trial performance in a Vaporfly. And a New York Times analysis of 500,000 marathon race entries on Strava revealed that Vaporflies ran 3-4% faster, on average, than similar runners wearing other shoes and more than 1% faster, on average, than the next fastest racing shoe. Given this knowledge, for some reason, only Nike and Adidas have developed shoes pushing right up to the maximum allowable 40mm stack height. But this does not necessarily mean that the Vaporfly or Alphafly or the Adios Pro shoes are the best shoe for technological doping your performance. Think of this. Nike and Adidas have the richest contracts, 
and have had the best runners long before carbon blades were infused into the foam of your shoes. Also, all of the studies have shown large variability in running economy between subjects. Some folks benefit more than others, which is why some smart athletes, Melindy Elmore comes to mind, will conduct their own testing to choose the best shoe for them. Always train smart. The bottom line is that the use of a large stack height helps elongate the foot and allows for the greater shoe stiffness when a shoe length S-shaped carbon curved blade is surrounded by a spongy spring-like foam. The result? A dramatic lowering of the energy cost of running. When Speedo released their laser suit, Fina clamped down after the frequency of new swimming world records became too many hurts for the brain to handle. Amidst the pandemic of running world records, what has World Athletics done about it? Well, World Athletics, what are you doing? About a year ago, in February 2020, I wrote an article titled World Athletics plus Rule Change equals Confusion and Sadness in which I outlined the January 2020 rule change that World Athletics implemented in response to the development and release of high stack height carbon fibre laden swoosh clad shoes. I also discussed how the new ruling would create a problem. Specifically, how could World Athletics monitor legal stack heights and legal use of carbon fibre prior to every race? A year on, we know the answer. They could not. In fact, they have not even tried. On the 28th of July 2020, World Athletics once again amended their rulebook to raise the allowed stack height of track spikes to 20mm for track events up to 800m and up to 25mm for track events 800m or longer. A confusing split, but coincidentally in keeping with the swooshes new dragonfly spike aimed at middle to long distance track events. In this amendment, meanwhile, the max stack height allowance for road shoes remained at 40mm. In the same rule amendment, in an attempt to level the playing field, World Athletics also announced that they would create an athletic shoe availability scheme to help make all brand shoes available to non-sponsored athletes. This was a useful modification of their original must-be-available-to-all rule, which was ambiguous and theoretically allowed for small batches of custom prototype shoes to be released in a running store for a single day to tick the available to all box. The technical rules amendment C2.1, which can be easily downloaded on World Athletics website, also stated that one-off shoes made to order, i.e. that are only ones of a kind to suit the characteristics of an athlete's foot or other requirements are not permitted, and that such types of one-off shoes would need to be submitted to World Athletics for review and approval prior to competition. So, since the middle of 2020, it has been clear that shoes with a stack height up to 40mm are allowed on the road, but not on the track. Distance racing spikes are allowed a stack height of up to 25mm, but sprint racing spikes are only allowed 20mm. All shoes must be made available in the athletic shoe availability scheme, and one-off shoes, aka prototypes, 
are not allowed unless submitted to World Athletics for approval at least four months prior to competition. By the beard of Zeus, this is a tricky set of rules for World Athletics to control, and ones that did not simplify the existing rulebook. But surely their working group on athletic shoes have it under control, right? Since prototypes were not allowed, unless submitted to World Athletics for approval at least four months prior to competition, it was indeed very surprising to see that in October 2020, Sarah Hall was allowed to bypass these rules and wear a non-available ASICS prototype shoe at the London Marathon. This is not a personal dig at Hall, who has had an incredible race and an incredible season, eventually going on to run 2 hours 20 at the Marathon Project in December but simply an example of World Athletics not upholding their end of the bargain. But it must have triggered something, because on the 4th of December, within days of Kibiop Candier, Jacob Kiplimo, Ronox Kipruto and Alexander Mutiso all obliterating the pre-existing half-marathon world record in various Nike and Adidas clogs, World Athletics released another update to their rulebook in which they changed the rules for development shoes. C2.1 Technical Rules Amendment to Rule 5 Development shoe means a road, cross-country or track or field shoe which has never been available for purchase but which a sports manufacturer is developing to bring to market and would like to conduct tests with their sponsored athletes. Development shoes are not permitted to be worn at the World Athletic Series or the Olympic Games. Development shoes are not required to be made available for purchase or subject to the availability scheme. So, the update adds a complication. Brands still need to submit development shoes, aka prototypes, to World Athletics for evaluation and athletes will need to notify at which races they will use them but athletes are not allowed to use development shoes at World Championship events or the Olympics. This sounds good, but development shoes are exempt from the athlete availability scheme and they are permitted at big city marathons and road races, which is where pro athletes make their coin. So, if you don't have a shoe sponsor, you lose. Or, if your shoe sponsor doesn't develop super shoes, you also lose. Since the World Anti-Doping Authority, WADA, states that doping is defined as the occurrence of one or more of the anti-doping rule violations, then I feel confident in saying that the use of these super shoes is technological doping. It also appears that the rules will continue to permit technological doping. Essentially, these decisions are made in liaison with World Athletics' newly formed Working Group on Athletic Shoes which includes stakeholders with a balance of knowledge on the topic, but it includes six shoe brand representatives and only one athlete representative. Sadly, whatever opaque discussions go on behind closed doors, it seems clear to me that World Athletics love overcomplicating their rules and clearly do not seem to understand what protecting the integrity of sport really means. As a result, I have no idea what they are doing as it appears that they do not know what they are doing. Like the Iron Curtain doping era of the 70s and 80s, where world records were deemed suspicious, 
Now, with the advent of performance-enhancing supershoes, we cannot compare the new with the old. Is Cheptegei quicker than Gebra Selassie? Or is Gide better than Radcliffe? We will never know. But perhaps it is no different from being unable to compare Bannister's Cinder Track sub 4-minute mile to the post-Tartan Track era of the mid to late 1960s and El Garouge's current 3.43 world mile record. Cinder versus Tartan is also not a fair comparison. Right, rant over. Calm down, Solomon. The sun is setting. The sun is setting. A suggestion for moving forward. I don't hate technology. Tech is exciting. But, as I have said before, I don't watch sport to see how technology improves human endeavour, and I certainly don't watch sport to cheer on a shoe. Nonetheless, I will have to get used to it, since the race of the branded feet is very likely here to stay. In the meantime, I can only wish for one of two things. Number one. Can someone at FINA, the governing body for swimming, who was involved in overruling the laser swimsuit epic of the 2000s, please reach out to World Athletics to help educate them in simplicity, and perhaps also in integrity. Or, if that fails, number two. Can someone at UCI, that is cycling's governing body, who was involved in establishing the Cycling's Athletes' Hour, the noble but now defunct attempt to unify the one-hour time trial with old-school tech to allow riders of all eras to be compared, please reach out to World Athletics to help them develop something similar. Noting, of course, that UCI is not at all well-placed to educate anyone in integrity. Something is needed because... Nike has now published work on an ankle exoskeleton that reduces the oxygen cost of running by 15% compared to normal shoes. The study's authors estimate this to be a 10% increase in running speed with no additional energy cost. Great Odin's raven, that is immense. That would turn Eliot Kipchoge's marathon pace, 250 per K, into a blurry-eyed 233 minutes per K. This would be technological doping on steroids. We must not allow ankle exoskeletons to ever start wrapping themselves around Kipchoge's talocleural joint. If I could write to Nike, it would read something like this. Dear Phil, I hope your swoosh is in the right place. Robotics have a place in the world for rehab from injury and illness and for helping disabled folks improve their quality of life. In these cases, reducing the energy cost of movement is a welcome treat. But please do not mess with the beauty of running. But when I see Swoosh Ticks co-authoring and funding work examining ankle robots, my immediate thought goes to World Athletics and what they will next ignore and what they will next allow to be fitted into a shoe. What do I say to a fly? Shoe. Well, that is all. Thanks for joining me to hear my viewpoint. Until next time, keep thinking outside the box and keep training smart. I occasionally mention brands and products, but it is important to know that I am not sponsored by or receiving advertisement royalties from anyone. 
I have conducted biomedical research for which I have received research money from publicly funded national research councils and medical charities, and also from private companies, including Novo Nordisk Foundation, AstraZeneca, Amelin, the AP Muller Foundation, and the Augustinus Foundation. These companies had no control over the research design, data analysis, or publication outcomes of my work. Any recommendations I make are, and always will be, based on my own views and opinions shaped by the evidence available. The information I provide is not medical advice. Before making any changes to your habits of daily living based on any information I provide, always ensure it is safe for you to do so and consult your doctor if you are ever unsure.